0: We welcome you again to Weston Park Baptist Church as we uh, begin our month of July, we're into the summer, and today we finish our series that we've been looking at of new beginnings following Easter, now into Pentecost, what is our walk with Jesus like, what challenges do we face, what opportunities are there for us? Uh, following what Jesus has done for us. So today we are going to finish up on our look at the Gospel of Mark for now. And uh, then we'll move into some Psalms, I think, for uh, the summer weeks. So we begin with uh, Mark 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him. So as we begin, as the story is set up, the context is established, they're going up to Jerusalem. You notice that? They're going up, so they're down in the, the valley, Jordan Valley. Soon the following story is Christ and the disciples coming into Jericho where they meet Bartimaeus and then definitely the road travels up from Jericho some 5,000 feet over these I forget exactly how many kilometers 10 kilometers or so on up to Jerusalem so it is going up the mountain. So they are on that road that eventually takes them up to Jerusalem and of course at this point in Mark, if they're going towards Jerusalem, then they are going to the Passion of Christ. So, and here we see Jesus marching ahead deliberately, intentionally. One of the parallel gospels talks about Jesus setting his face resolutely on Jerusalem. So he's made up his mind that he is going there and he is prepared to pay whatever price it has and demands for the kingdom of God. So he's going. We notice that he's ahead and the disciples are behind and they're following. And there is a sense of amazement but also of fear. They're apprehensive of what will happen there because they know that the leadership of the day, the religious leadership, and even Rome is... They're not happy with Christ and what's going on. So they're apprehensive about all this. And so then as the uh, text follows, we see that Jesus now delivers this third passion prediction in the Gospel of Mark before the whole passion story. So verse 33, Jesus talks to his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will contemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise again. So this is the third passion prediction. It refers to themselves as the Son of Man, We hear that word handed over or betrayed has both sense of to the chief priests and the scribes, Judas' involvement in this story, and the religious leaders. And for the first time, we see in verse 33 at the end, they will hand him over to the Gentiles. Gentiles are to the Romans, to the Greeks. So this is the first time of those three that the Gentile community is involved in the death of Christ. So Jesus is saying that ultimately, the religious leaders will hand him over to them. And then they will, verse 34, mock him, spit upon him, flog him, and kill him. So that's their involvement. And we notice, actually, through the three passion predictions, there is no mention of the cross. We're not told how Christ is going to be killed in any of these three predictions up to this point. But we know that, ultimately, that's the manner of his death. So, hand it over to the Gentiles. We noted last week, when we were looking at these stories, that we are also involved in this story, that we are part of the Gentiles. We are part of the community that, ultimately, kills Christ. Even as we resist his story, if we refuse the story, say no to it, then we, we are part of that group. So we, we are p- part of what happens to Jesus because we are not you know, innocent of sin and our own transgressions and what we do and how we say no to God. So as that happens in our lives then we are part of this story in terms of the execution of Christ. So we're even though we're not mentioned, we're not mentioned obviously, but we are part of that reality. How we resist Jesus. We know that we want him as Christians, we want to say yes, but we also say no. We don't always say yes. We at times choose our own ego, we choose our own self, we choose our own desires. So our own complacency, our own apathy to the things of God is part of the refusal of Christ. So as Mark tells this story for the third time, you know, it reminds us of how we are engaged and will we engage in a costly discipleship, not a cheap discipleship. Will we not just say yes when things are easy, but will we say yes when there's a demand to it? Remember Christ said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So that's an invitation to take our spiritual journey seriously. Even as Christ goes up the mountain, up the spiritual mountain, as his followers we are called to follow up that spiritual mountain. So will we do so? So that's how the story is framed. And then as it carries on, we hear this in verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So it's interesting In this story, James and John go to Christ. In Matthew's version of this story, we're told that James and John go with their mother, and their mother is the one who initially speaks, saying, will you do this for my sons? In Mark's story, it's presented this way. So they say, teacher, we want you to do things for us. He says, what would that be? And then they say, we want special places. We want places of prominence. We want to sit at the right hand and the left hand in your glory. Now what this reveals is that the disciples still do not get it at all about Christ coming as the suffering Messiah. After all his teaching, the third prediction here, after all of this, they still are not getting it, they're thinking of Jesus as the conquering Messiah. That's that's how strong that myth was. That when the Messiah comes, he will set things right and he will destroy our enemies. Happens to be now the Romans. That empire. And so they're deeply committed to that and in spite of Jesus' teaching, they have a hard time letting it go. Therefore, they want to sit at the right hand and left hand of Christ in these places of power and privilege in the coming kingdom. And they are hoping that that will actually happen when it comes to place in Jerusalem. In spite of what they're saying, and Christ is saying, they're hoping that ultimately that will be the case. So they ask for the positions of power. They want special places. Interesting that James and John normally are with Peter, so we might ask, well, where is Peter right now? The inner circle is Peter, James, and John. So somehow they've got a sidebar going on, and Peter isn't part of it. And they want a blank check. They want to be over the others. That's what we're hearing. And as Jesus responds, it's interesting, he does not chide them. He doesn't say, look at you guys, how much do I have to tell you? That's not the way it's going. Rather, he speaks about his own cup of suffering and baptism. And he asks them, are you able to drink my cup of suffering and baptism? And they glibly say in verse 39, yes, we can do that. Jesus says, well, in one way, ultimately you will do that speaking of their own martyrdom. But, at this point, he says, that's not my place to give. Interesting, Christ, that's the son of man, the son of God, he says, it's not my place to give those positions of power. So that's the sidebar that's going on. And then, Mark tells us, hear this in verse 41, when the ten, that is the ten other disciples, heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. and that It's really more they were infuriated with James and John. They're saying, how can you do that? How can you want that? How can you go to Christ and ask for these special positions of power? And what it reveals is that all the disciples, are caught up in the same idea. They they all want to be those special people. Certainly Peter would have wanted it. We want that. So they're all caught up in the world's model of competition, comparison, power over. They're angry maybe that they didn't think about this and they didn't go to Christ in the first place. So they're, they're all in the same boat, that James and John are just the ones who initiated it with their their mom. And so when the disciples are angry, I would say that the disciples are full of resentment. They are resenting the two others who are part of their group for wanting that position of power over. And I believe that resentment continues to play a problem in our society, both outside of the church and within the church. I think as believers, we can easily get caught up and do get caught up in resentment. That we become angry with others in the group, in the church. And we resent them. And in some ways, this is nothing new. Paul says in Philippians 4, 2, he urges two women leaders in his church, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord because they're fighting with each other. They're causing a problem in the church, and he urges them. He recognizes that they are both good, strong, helpful leaders, but they're infighting. They're resenting each other in some reason. And I think we really have to look at our own hearts here and our own actions and our own words in terms of how we become resentful, and as that, we hinder the work of God. And when we become resentful, we're, we're looking at ourselves. We're thinking that, hey, I've been injured some way. I have not been respected. People are not taking me seriously. Whatever it might be, but we become resentful. And that's what's going on with the other ten to these two. And that's enough of a problem that Jesus takes them aside and has a powwow with them and says, here, Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. In the midst of all the way, going up to Jerusalem and all that's in front of him, he thinks it's important enough that he needs to have a teaching time with them in a specific way to say this is not the way it is with us. So the Gentiles, those Gentiles, the Greeks, the Romans, typically two words are used, they lord it over others or and also they become tyrants over them. Lord it over, and great ones are tyrants. Lord it over refers to the overwhelming imperial power. They lord it over. We can think of rulers in our world right now who lord it over. They feel like they are emperors. Overwhelming imperial power. I can say it, and what I say happens. And act as tyrants means use force, intimidation, and buy loyalty. Literally, it means they throw their weight around. And certainly, we see this in our world. People using their force and their intimidation and their money to buy loyalty to get done what they need done. So they lord it over, they use their raw power to accomplish what they want. And so that's what Rome is doing and the emperor, but we see it in our day too. Politicians around the world, various countries, not all countries, various countries, they use their power, raw power, to accomplish what they want. They take the money, they take their resources, they put it all into their family, and the, the, the people they just ignore. Lord it over. The key statement here after that is verse 43, but Jesus says, but it is not so among you. Others may do that. Their communities may be that way, but it is not so among you. Therefore, we are not fighting with one another over positions of power and positions of prominence. That's not how we work but it is not so among you. It is a command, it is an imperative. We've been looking at my book, Walking the Line, The Imperatives of Jesus. Well, here's another one. This is a command, but it's stated this way. But it is not so among you. Means I do not want you to act this way. It's a command. So it's our manner of relating, decision-making, Going forward, we are to be servants. And here Jesus, Mark, uses two different words, diakonos, which we get deacon from, and doulos, which is even stronger, to be a servant or slave. We are to be committed to helping others, serving others, and not ruling over others. So that's what Jesus says in response to these folks. John 1 John picks it up in 1 John 4.11. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. So it's a, a statement of love. It's a statement of encouragement. Not to lord it over others, but to take the position intentionally, willingly to serve others, even to be a slave to others powerful story and we you know we've heard that a line of thinking earlier in our texts and then finally it's summed up in verse 45 Jesus says for the son of man came not to be served but to serve and then he ends it with and to give his life a ransom for many that's a beautiful statement a strong statement I came, the son of man, a reference to himself, not to be served, but to serve. Then he ends it by giving my life as a ransom for many. Life here is psyche. To give my physical life. I'm going to give my physical life as a ransom. It's an unusual word, Mark. it only happens two times, which means an economic payment to release others. It's just a ransom, it's money. That's the image. I give my life, physical life, in a way to help others. So it's meaning what? It's an example of love. I give my life to help others. It's finally an example of love. By the way, we're not to make out of this one half of the verse our whole understanding of the atonement of Christ from this, although it does speak to it. But it's, it's not the point here. It's an example of love. Christ's work for us. Christ's love for us. I mean, where does Jesus get this image? I think the closest thing we know is that Christ drew a lot from the prophet Isaiah 53 12, talks about the suffering servant giving his life as a ransom for others. So that image in Isaiah 53, I think Jesus is drawing here. So it talks about, on a deeper level, Christ's work for us. Jesus work for us to buy us back. We are lost, and he buys us back. Now, how, how all that works out in great detail, this passage is not showing. But it does show his love, Christ's love, for you and for me to overcome the power of sin in your life and my life and our own inveterate nature to go our own way. That, you know, we need to explore and develop in other situations. But Christ's work for us, a servant for us, So as we sum up, where are we? Well, we are stumbling followers and shaky servants. Another writer uses that, I like it. Stumbling followers and shaky servants. Even as the disciples messed up, we mess up, but Jesus didn't give up on them, and he doesn't give up on us. He is our patient, suffering servant, Messiah, who's committed to you and to me, that we will enter his kingdom, And that our sin and all our brokenness will be overturned and that we will be made into the image of Christ. So it's a commitment of love for you and for me. And we need to hear that. We need to hear that. We mess up so regularly, we need to hear of Christ's commitment to us. And secondly, we see that Jesus does not dance to the world's tune. Jesus could easily have become the world real ruler in that day. Between his wisdom, his understanding of human nature, and his own power to do amazing things, he could have become easily a new emperor. But he chooses not to do that. It's not like he couldn't do it. He could do it. But he doesn't travel that way. He travels and models for us the way of service, love, and compassion, not the model of power and dominance. He doesn't want that model. That's not the best model for the planet. It is one of love and compassion. That's the only way our planet ultimately will be saved. Not by tyrants and political leaders ruling and fighting with everybody and threatening with great weapons i mean that that can only end in disaster and jesus knows that so he, he says that's not the way we're going so he presents thirdly a counter vision for how the world will go and the template is that is of, of one of love and compassion within the church and outside of the church the kingdom of god is to be regulated in such a loving way, caring way, helping for everybody, all those on the margins, for those to be cared for and loved. That's the only way Jesus sees that. And then finally, we see that in spite of our imperfections, we are called and invited to be in Christ's community of love and service for others, his church, Not caught up in resentment and anger and everything else, but put on the fruit of the Spirit. That's our way. So we end with a question, how and where are we serving one another? Or are we caught up in resentment and quarreling? We we have to ask ourselves. We need to take responsibility for our own actions of saying yes, to be choosers of Jesus to say yes and to live in love, not non-choosers going the other way. So ultimately, we are called to climb the spiritual mountain up to Jerusalem, to follow our Lord. And yeah, at times, you know, we have to let things roll over our backs, let it go down the river. We can't hold on to everything, all our grudges. But to say yes to Christ and love in Christ and then allow that love to flow out to others. As us, as a church community, as a witness of light to this area of Weston, may we be the face of Jesus to others. And I offer these words to you, to me, to all of us in Christ's name. Amen.